Okay, we are in Joshua chapter 3. We had spoken last time about uh, a little bit about the crossing of the, the Jordan in, in Joshua chapter 3, about uh, that crossing. And uh, <clears throat> so we've, we've read part of the chapter, and now we're going to pick it up. Joshua chapter 3, verse 9. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that He will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord of all the earth rests in the water of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan, with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before them. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were follow, flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all, those, uh, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Okay, so let me go over with you again where, where they are geographically. They are on the east side of the Jordan. So this is the, the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Chinnereth. And it goes down to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, this Jordan River. This is the Jordan River. And this is where they're about to cross. So they're on this side of the Jordan. They're about to cross onto this side, which is Jericho, is right here. And so remember, this scale bar, this scale bar is 20 miles. So, so, from the Jordan to Jericho looks like it's something on the order of about five or six miles. Not very far. Certainly something that can even be walked in a day. But they're just going to cross this river. The river, remember, is normally 90 to, uh, 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 90 to 100 feet across, but now it's at flood stage. We looked at this last time, how only a strong man would normally be able to get across that river at flood stage because we read about that about later on in the Scriptures, it talks how, about how the Gadites, being very strong men, were able to ford the river at flood stage. Normally, it's quite easy to ford. It's 3 to 10 feet deep, only 100 feet across. But at flood stage, it, 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 you'd have to be a strong swimmer to get across. And it's at flood stage. And now, all of a sudden, what's going to happen is when those priests step into the river, there is go, it, 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 it's different than the crossing of the Red Sea when the Israelites came out of Egypt. It said it was like a wall on each side of them. It was like a wall on each side. The sea parted and they went and it was like a wall on each side. This is not what happens. It says that it stood up in a heap far above them. 
and it talks about this land of Adam and Jerithah. And that's actually up here near the, the, the sea up here. So it's actually way up here that the water is going to start piling up. And it's way up here that the water is going to start to pile up. That's going to cut off the flow and then they're going to walk across. And so, so uh, uh, he says that, that, that uh, the place where the water stood still, he, he mentions that in, uh, in, in, verse, in verse 16, that there was a town named Adam and beside that Zarathon. Adam and Zarathon are about 12 miles apart from each other. And it's in that 12-mile gap that, that uh, uh, the water is going to pile up. And in fact, that's the only area then you look at it geographically where, the, where there would be enough open area for this water to start piling up. And the, the town Adam today is called Tel Damia. Uh, Damia. Tel Damia. This word Tel means that it's, it's up on a hill. And if you look at many cities in Israel today, you look at that, that the remains of a town and it'll be way up on a hill and it's flat on top. And you say, that's an odd geography. Well, that's built up over the years. You've heard of Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv. Tel means up on a hill, where when one city would, would be done away with, they would just take those stones and they wouldn't reuse many of those stones. They would just build another city on top and on top, so that if you look at many of the towns today, they're on this Tel, they are on a hill, and it's a flat top, and uh, uh, the cities are are rather small. I mean, it, it's maybe, maybe the size of one of these little city blocks here. That's the size of these cities. And, so, and then there's Zarathon is Tel Ses, or Tel Sadia, is, is, is what that city is today. So 1.5 million people approximately had to cross because, the, remember, there was Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were going to stay on the east side of the Jordan. And only about uh, uh, 40,000 or 40 to 50,000, we'll see that exact number of their troops are going to come across. And there's about another 150,000 that are staying with those on the other side. And so if you take all of those tribes, so, so you had 2 million, so only about 1.5 million are going to cross. So it's 1.5 million people have to cross with their animals. Now, is there any evidence of such a drying up of the Jordan? And there is. On December 8th, 1267... There was an earthquake and it broke down. Uh, uh, an earthquake caused the river, the river banks to collapse. And the riverbanks collapsed near that town of Adam and the waters piled up north of Adam and, and for 10 hours. And it happened again on July 11th, 1927. There was a similar earthquake that caused the riverbanks to collapse and cut off the flow. And that occurred for 21 hours before the flow was en enough to open it back up. And, and uh, uh, so that occurred for 21 hours. But in neither of those cases did it occur at flood stage, at harvest time. And, and uh, um, so, so what was miraculous about this is the perfect timing. It happened exactly when Joshua said it was going to happen. It also happened, it, it also says that, that it, it happened at flood stage. So that's another part that makes this different than those others. Another one is that it says that when they stood, it says in the last verse of that chapter, it says that Israel crossed on dry ground. So the ground was dry. Again, that's miraculous. Generally, the ground wouldn't immediately dry up. It would, it, it would be wet for quite some time. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, actually of Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, it says the people of the land viewed it as a miraculous crawl, crossing. 
So indeed, it was a miracle that occurred at that time. Now, what's different about this crossing than the crossing that occurred when they, when they traveled across the Red Sea is this. What's different about this crossing is that they had no army at their back chasing them down. When they crossed, when they had just come out as slaves out of Egypt, they had the army of Egypt hot on, on, on their tail behind them. And the army of Egypt was going to do away with them and that's when God came and He blew back the waters and it was like a wall on each side and they parted. They had to leave because they had, in a sense, a gun to their head. And they had no choice but to cross through. Here, they're actually quite comfortable on the east side of the Jordan. They've defeated, defeated the two kings uh, uh, on the east side of the Jordan. It's nice over there. And God says, I'm going to take you to the other side of the Jordan. So why would they want to go if it's peaceful? Why would they risk this? Imagine you're going through this flood stage riverbed and you're walking through it. How do you know that the waters aren't going to just open up and sweep you away? This is an act of faith. And it's an act of faith that they were not forced into, like when they were coming out of Egypt. It's actually an act of faith that they they had an option of saying, hey, I, I, I don't want to go. I mean, it's very comfortable over here. But they stepped out in faith. This will happen to you sometimes. Sometimes you'll, you'll have to leave Houston. So you've made all these friends and everything, and, and uh, uh, you've finished, you finished college, you've made all these friends, and you're really comfortable, and you feel like, wow, so much of my life was here, and I'm, I just really like this. And then you're going to be driving out of the city because you, you've, got, you've got a position somewhere else, or you're going to be flying out of Houston and you're just going to start weeping. And it's going to be like, wow, all my friends are here. Why am I leaving? Why am I being, why is this happening to me? And you'll feel it as, as if, you know, no one's making me leave. Why am I making this decision to leave? In service to the Lord, this often occurs. You have to move forward with your life. And uh, these folks, this was different in that they were moving into this land and God had told them, you're going to have to fight all these different groups of people. Why don't I just stay on the east side of the Jordan and be comfortable? Why go on the west side? But this is part of what, what they're confronting in their life. They're going to have to take on all of these different people groups. That's why in, in verse, in verse uh, 10, it says, it talks about the Canaanite, the Hittite. Hivite, Perizzite, Girgashite, Amorite, Jebusite. All of these were different people groups that they were going to have to fight. And it wasn't easy. And they went in and they fought these different people groups. But there's, there's something also in, in, in Exodus. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus, this was a word that was given to Moses in Exodus chapter 23. And in Exodus chapter 23... Down at verse, uh, at, we'll start reading at verse 27. <clears throat> this is what God spoke to Moses. He said in Exodus chapter 23, verse 27, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you, 
little by little, until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. So look what he says. He says, I'm not going to drive these people out before you. So if you think, if you get in your mind that they're going to go in and boom, just clean out the land, that's not what's going to happen. God even told them a number of years before through Moses that I'm not going to drive them out even in a single year. If you think you're going to drive them out in a week, it's not going to happen. Not even in a single year. When he says not even in a single year, that could be five years, it could be ten years, but it's over a period of time. He says, I'm not going to drive them out in a single year, lest the land become desolate and animals move in and the beasts move in and, and, and uh, you can't handle it yet. And I liken it to this. When you get saved, you come to a knowledge of the Lord. Most of your problems remain with you. You'd think, why, doesn't, why don't on the day of salvation I receive the Lord and He just gets rid of all these problems in my life. Get rid of this, this depression that I have. Get rid of this low self-esteem and all these other problems and secrets. Why doesn't He just get rid of it? Just, you know, wave His magic wand, poof, it's gone. You know, if you can make rivers part, I mean, just do this. This is an easy thing. But He doesn't do it. Sometimes, on the day of salvation, he'll break some certain habit. November 7th, 1977, I came to the Lord. And, and what one young man shared with me, he shared with me a verse that Jesus had, had uh, that really convicted me of my sins. And it convicted me of my sins because Jesus had said, if you look at a woman with lust for her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And I was addicted to pornography at the age of 18. I'd actually been addicted since the age of 14. And when I was 18 years old, and he shared that with me, I was really convicted of my sin. When I gave my heart to the Lord on November 7, 1977, that was broken. There was no more draw to pornography anymore. That's unusual. Not many men have that broken in them on the day of salvation. But the Lord used that to convict me of my sin, and He used that to show me His power. But I had a lot of other problems which took me many, many years to work through and which are still resident within me which every now and then crop up. Why is that? Why wouldn't God get rid of all these problems? He says that I don't get rid of them right away because you can't handle it. You can't handle that land. You know, if He had gotten rid of all my problems on November 7th, 1977, what kind of compassion could I have upon others? Young man comes to me and shares that he's struggling with pornography. I'd be like, so what's your problem? If you've received the Lord, it should have been gone. I mean, just grow up and receive the Lord and, and, and uh, walk in the truth. He allows us to continue to be afflicted, lest we become too prideful. He allows us to continue to be like this, so we continue to cry out to Him. Let's turn to the book of Judges. So right after Joshua is the book of Judges. Turn to the book of Judges, chapter 3. And we're going to start reading at verse 1. The book of Judges, chapter 3, verse 1. Now this is, this period, the book of Judges, in cha- Judges chapter 3, is somewhere around 40 years or so, around 40 years 
could be 30 years, could be 50 years, but around 40 years after the events we are just reading about the crossing of the river, the crossing of the Jordan River. About 40 years later, here's something that occurs. Judges chapter 3, verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters, their sons, and served their gods. So here you have a generation, about 40 years after this generation that was going to walk in across the Jordan and take that land, about 40 years later, a generation that had never fought wars. Their parents and their grandparents had fought these battles, but they themselves had never fought these battles. And God said, these are the nations which the Lord left. You may say, well, you know, Joshua should have wiped out everybody because God told them to wipe out everybody. But God had already said, I'm not going to wipe them out in a year and now you've got 40 years and they're still not wiped out. So when he said, I will not wipe them out in a year, all you knew was that it was going to be greater than a year before they would be wiped out. What that greater than is, you know, that can be from, if it's greater than one, it could be infinity. I mean, it's, you know, it's a big gap between one and greater than one. And that's all he said. That's all he said. Is, 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 is it's going to be greater than a year? Here we are 40 years later, and it says the Lord left them. The Lord left them there. Why did He leave them? To test Israel by them. That all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war. Those who had not experienced it formerly. He wanted them to learn how to do battle. He wanted them to learn war. The weapons of our warfare are not against flesh and blood. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 6. But it is against heavenly principalities. It is against powers and principalities. If you want to take totally a materialistic view of this world, then you've got to rip out almost every page of your Bible. Or just say, well, it's just a book of allegories. But the Scriptures themselves say... That for us, for us today in the church, the battle is not fighting human flesh. The battle is against powers and principalities. There is a battle going on. He says He left this for them in order that they would learn to make war. These are the nations, and He specifically tells us the nations that were left, the nations that are there for, him to, for them to do battle with. It says again in verse 4 of Judges chapter 3, they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord. There are continual problems that come up in our lives. 
It is not like you come to the Lord and on the day of salvation, everything is all fixed. It is not like you walk with the Lord for 10 years and then you're really pretty good. No, you are constantly confronted with the sin within yourself. Constantly confronted with having to come before the Lord and cry out to Him. And the ugliness of sin will raise its head in our lives as soon as we start feeling like we're pretty good and we've accomplished something. The ugliness of sin will come in and we'll have an outburst of anger or an outburst of words. We'd be like, where did that come from? I thought I dealt with that years ago. Well, the Lord left some of it there to test you, to see if you would cry out to Him. And they were failing this test. Remember, they were supposed to clear out the land, and here they were giving their daughters to the sons of those people and taking their women and bringing them in, and they started to commingle with those people. In verse 7, the sons of Israel, in Judges chapter 3, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. They didn't even know what the Baals and Asheroth were. They learned it from these people. You marry the wrong person, you intermingle, you marry the wrong person, and you will end up worshiping their gods. If you want to be a believer, obey the Word of God. The Word of God says we are not to be unequally yoked, believer with unbeliever. You marry an unbeliever and say, well, they're they're really a good person. I'm fine with that. They're a great person. But you're unequally yoked. And little by little, you will be drawn into relationships with them and start worshiping their gods. You think that you will draw them to your God? That will change. I have seen this with my own eyes. I've seen uh, uh, where, where women were going to marry men that were not believers. And they would come and they would talk with me. I said, why are you marrying this guy? He's not a believer. And, and uh, I remember I was sitting with this young lady and her parents and she and her parents were believers and they were marrying a young man who was an unbeliever. She, she was marrying a young man who was an unbeliever. I said, how could you do this? He doesn't know the Lord. And she got really upset with me. We love him for what he is and not for what he isn't. Boy, that's a neat way of putting it. But it's still a violation of the Word of God. I'm glad you love him but it's still a violation of the Word of God. And so, I was supposed to be in this wedding. So I spoke to the pastor at the, at the, uh, um, at the rehearsal dinner. So the pastor's sitting there with his wife. I said, how can you go through with this wedding? This, this guy is not a believer. And he was really convicted by that. But his wife was not. She spoke up. She said, well, we love him. We love him. And we want to keep him in the church. He's not in the church. But she really came to her husband's defense. And, you know, what could I say? I mean, anyway, they got married. And this young man, to his credit, had been going with her to church during their time of engagement. About six weeks into the marriage, he decided to stop going to church. And he rarely ever went back again. And then the kids came and they started following the father's lead. And, if, and, and, and a few years into this, the whole thing broke up. The whole thing imploded. It doesn't work. 
It doesn't work. Now, you can cite for me examples where once in a while the, the unbelieving spouse has come into the faith. But those are rare. And the pain of it is enormous. If it's the Lord's will, ask the Lord to change that person's heart. But don't be having a relationship with them because you're going to get tied in. And especially if that relationship starts becoming physical. You're going to get tied in with that unbeliever. Remember there was a young lady that called that, that uh, she had been in the class several years ago and she, she told Shireen, she said, I want Dr. Tour to meet this young man. You know, he's really great. And she was a fine girl. And, uh, and, and Shireen said to her, does this young man know the Lord? Because that's going to be Dr. Tour's first question. Silence. She said, well, he's a good guy, but not yet. She never brought him by because that would be my first question. I'd say, tell me about your experience with the Lord. Tell me about it. And, and uh, um, this is exactly what they started doing. Started getting them into real trouble. It says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they started serving their other gods. So in verse 9, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. So, so what had happened to them, let me, let me go back to verse 8. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Ishtharim, king of Mesopotamia. And the sons of Israel served Cushan Ishtharim uh, eight years. So in other words, it had become really hard. And this is exactly what I see. When there's an unequally yoked marriage, it is miserable. Generally, for both parties, it's miserable. For the believer and for the unbeliever, it's miserable. And they cried out, and it was eight years of misery. It says, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So this is Caleb. So at the crossing, going into the Jordan, Caleb is, is, is around 80 years old, 80, 81 years old. Because he was 40 when he had first gone into the land. This was 40 years later. So he's around 80 years old. So this is his, his nephew. So this is Caleb's nephew. That's why I say, you know, this is somewhere around 30, 40 years, 50 years later. Not more than 50 years after the events that we're, we're talking about. Here's how we can pin it down to within a few decades. But this is what happens. Now let's turn, let's, let's turn to, uh, to Ephesians. Ephesians. Chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, so we can see where, where our battle is today. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to start reading at verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle, this is in the church now, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, and against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand, stand firm. So, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but He is teaching us to make war. He is teaching you to make war, but not against flesh and blood, against spiritual forces of darkness. And if you think it is all emotional, it's all just, you, you know, some construct within my mind. There are a lot of emotional things we need to work through. There are a lot of things which counseling can help us with. And I am all for it. I'm all for all sorts of counseling. And I love counselors. They do a great job. But there are other things that are beyond just the material. 
And he says it here, it's not flesh and blood, it's rulers, it's against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness. There are these sort of forces as well that we need to learn to do battle with. We need to learn to pray. Sometimes there are, there are feelings that can fall over a person. And you need to learn to pray through this and to learn to pray with others and to see your way through this. He is teaching us to cry out to Him just like He did with Israel. He didn't clear them out. He promised them, I will clear them out. But He didn't say how long it would take. He left residues of them to see. Will you cry out to Him? You will go through seasons in your life where you, where, you, you know, you're really pressing into the Lord. Then you go into seasons where you feel like, you know, I feel like I'm drifting. When you get that sense that I'm drifting, I haven't been spending time in the Scriptures, you need to make a change. I suggest that you learn how to fast and pray. Fasting and prayer. Go into a time of fasting. Now, fasting doesn't mean that you don't eat between breakfast and lunch. That's not fasting. That's just not eating between breakfast and lunch. All right? Fasting is over a period of time that really takes its toll on you. That may be a day. That may be two days, three days. Trust me, you will not die. You will feel hungry, but you're not starving. Generally, most of us have plenty to live on for a few days. And you spend some time just drinking water and pressing into the Lord. You will see that after that season of prayer, after that season of fasting and prayer, it can be miserable in that season because it's tough to fast and pray. But after it, you'll, you'll have a renewed closeness with the Lord. Where you spend renewed time of spending time in the Scriptures. If you don't have a daily time of spending time in the Scriptures, those Hivites and Girgashites and Philistines will eat away at your edges. They really will. And you'll start seeing these little things crop up. Your former temper start to crop up. Your former language start to crop up. Your former cynicism start to crop up. And you'll have cynicism about the church. Oh, yeah, I don't like the church. I mean, who are they to tell me what to do? Uh, Jesus instructed them to tell you what to do. How's that? You know, there, there, are, things that, there are things that we do. Things that we do and accomplish that, that are before us. You learn how to have a season of pressing in with the Lord. What the Lord did is He took them, He said to them, as you go through, as you go through this, this river, what you're going to see, this is a small demonstration of my power, what I'm going to do through your life. He said, so if we turn back, turn back to, uh, to, to uh, where we were in Joshua, turn back to Joshua chapter 3, Joshua chapter 3, and he says, he said in Joshua chapter 3, verse 10, By this you will know that the living God is among you, and that He will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, Hittite, Hivite, Perizzite, Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. By this. By what? By your crossing. In other words, He's going to give you a demonstration so that you can remember how He dried up this river and you crossed because He wants to give you a little bit of faith here to show you that His hand is with you and what he's going to, so that you can hold on to what he's going to do through you to accomplish, to, to conquer all these armies. This is exactly what the Lord does in our lives. He gives us little shows 
when he broke that spirit of, of uh, um, pornography in me, I saw his hand of power. If you've ever been addicted to something and to be freed from it is amazing. I saw his hand of power, which was a demonstration to me of what he was going to do through my life. And this is what God has done. He, what God does is he gives little demonstrations, little answers to prayer, which are little stakes in the sand to tell us that this shows you that I am just beginning. This is a new work. I'm going to do a great thing through your life. And he gives us these little demonstrations. Joshua said, you're going to know by this, by this crossing, that indeed God is going to deliver you from all of these people that are afflicting you in this land that are going to come against you. And we're going to read about how five kings would just gang up together to try to attack Israel. A frightening thing. We will read about this. But this is exactly what He does in our lives. He takes this sort of thing and He gives little successes that we're supposed to hold on to and to say, Lord, You did it. You did it before. And I've come to the point in my life where I look back. I look back upon almost 40 years of walking with the Lord. And I say, Lord, You did it in this case, this case, this case, this case. You haven't done this all this time just to drop me now. He gives us all these little successes that we can reflect back on. All these little examples of His grace that we can look back on. And to say, Lord, you did it before. You'll do it again. Let's pray. Abba Father, I pray for these young people that they would learn to fight. They would learn to fight these powers of darkness. Learn to pray and to take a stand. Abba Father, I pray that you would so work in their young lives to get a hold of their hearts. Teach them how to fight. Father, for those that are dealing and struggling with depression, with low self-esteem, Father, I pray that you would be lifting them up and as you have lifted them up, that they would remember what you have done. And Lord, as you have left residues there, Cause it to call them to, to, to cause them to cry out to you, that they would cry out to you, that they would daily be in need of you, Father, so that they may be ready and able to share with others who are struggling. Lord, your grace be there upon them. Father, I pray that you would take these young people and do a great thing through their lives by the power and the grace of God. Teach them to take hold of the little things that you have done to this point, to know that these are markers that you're going to do many great things. Father, change their lives because of today, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.